Hi, I'm Anthony. And I'm Josh. And welcome to 52 in 52. Uh, so this is uh, Josh and I's first podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about movies. Um, first, I'd like to give a shout out to MoviePass because uh, none of this would be possible without you guys. Thank you. Um, if you guys would uh, like to sponsor us in the future, uh, I'll give you the contact info for our producer. Um, so uh, I'd like to thank our lovely producer, Rachel. She uh, kind of gave us the idea for this podcast. And uh, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about how it spawned. Um, so Josh and I are both in law school together, as well as Rachel. And uh, uh, I started watching a lot of movies two years ago. And uh, me and Josh were friends, and he started coming with me to all the movies. I started to uh, count how many movies I was watching and decided that I wanted to watch uh, one a week. And so 52, obviously, once one, one a week for a whole year. And, uh, you know, it kind of became a thing. And Josh started uh, watching movies as well. Uh, once I got to the new year, I actually uh, had to watch two movies on New Year's Eve last year to get to 52. Those two movies were A Walk in the Tombstones and um, Two Night Stand. You should not watch that movie, but you can IMDb it if you want to. I think Josh saw it too. Right? No, I did not. Oh, uh, don't watch it. I think I think a point to make, given that you had to end your year like that, and we started our, this, we started 2015, probably seeing a lot of movies that weren't that much better than that either. Uh, but you kind of said I started going to the movies a lot, and I went to the movies before we started kind of doing this as a thing. But like, I'd say like the average Rotten Tomato score of the movies I went to took a significant dip once I started doing this because. I was I, I did enjoy movies, but the whole genesis of this fifty two for fifty two thing kind of like once I kind of joined in in it, like I started seeing a lot of this stuff of the ilk that you saw the last two days of last year. <laughs> Luckily, we're starting this thing at a time of the year where we don't really have to worry about that because a lot of good stuff's coming out now. Yeah, this was the perfect time to start. I w um, it would probably would have been better to start January first kind of thing, but fuck that. We're just gonna we're just gonna go from here. You're already at half the count of the Martian there on the Fox. Oh, yeah. Wait. Oh, sh sh we're going to get to that, Josh. We're going to get to that. Um, so basically, that's how it started this year. Josh and I are already well past 52, but our whole goal is going to be to see one movie a week at least um, and then make a pod for each one. And sometimes we're going to throw in some bonus episodes and sometimes we're not because we don't have anything to say. I guess we're going to start this. We're going to be talking about Sicario, which Josh and I both saw last night. And then we're going to talk about The Martian, which we just saw an hour ago. So uh, I'm going to throw it over to Josh. We're going to talk non-spoilers first. Then we're going to get into the substantive stuff and go from there. So go ahead, Josh. What do you think of Sicario? I can't remember the last time I saw a movie like that where, like, I could Maybe there's been a couple movies, I'd say Whiplash is one, where, like, I could feel my heart beating really, really fast as soon as it ended, and, like, for a few minutes after I walked out of the movie, but, like, I drove home from the theater, and then I, like, uh, I think I took my shoes off and uh, plugged my laptop in, sat down on my bed, got on Twitter, and I was, like, gonna say something about Sicario, and then I realized my heart was still racing, and this was, I live about 15 minutes from the theater we saw it at, so at this point, it was probably 25 minutes afterward, and I realized, like, I was still, like, really wound up, and I think that kind of goes to show just how uh, well-directed this film was, that it was, I can't remember the last time I had that intense of an experience at a movie. For and sure. I think that I think that's, if you're just going to try and describe it in a way that doesn't spoil anything without exactly any real specifics, that's kind of the, I think that's the, that's the best way to, for, at least I can describe my experiences with this, how, how intensely directed a lot of these action scenes were and even some of the scenes that weren't action packed you were just kind of like your heart was still racing anyway because you were waiting for something bad to happen pretty much after the first scene of that movie kind of sets you up to just expect something to the shit to hit the fan at any moment no, no matter what is going on yeah well, that's we'll, kind of how it was we'll definitely talk about the first scene more mm -hmm. i think the word that i would use is it's kind of cliche but gripping for mm -hmm. sure um it was really good. So basically, if you haven't seen it, the plot of the movie is Emily Blunt is a, a raid uh, police person. She's she specializes like part in... Part of a kidnap response team. Raiding, yeah. Um, so basically, she raids this house, and they find a bunch of uh, dead bodies. And um, she then gets recruited uh, with Josh Brolin to work in some not undercover mission, but kind of an off-the-books mission. And she doesn't really know what it's about. 
she's told he's a DOD advisor. Advisor, yeah. And same with Benicio, who comes in uh, about five minutes after that. And he's just a dude that used to be a prosecutor. We know even less about him. Who, who dresses very nicely. <laughs> and flies on very, very nice jets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Private jets for the DOD. That's nice to know. Um, basically, just the path of the movie, it takes you through Emily Blunt's experience with these two guys and, and this mission going after a Mexican drug cartel, um, basically going from Arizona to Mexico and back and and fighting what most people would say the war on drugs, but I think ultimately the movie isn't even about that at all. Um, it's just kind of a set piece for what, for how they wanted to tell a story or get across a message, and they just used this war on drugs to, to get there. I'd say the emphasis is much more on the first word of that term than the third. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say, first of all, the acting, incredible. Great, great, great casting. Uh, Berlin was perfect. We just saw him in Everest. Um, I actually didn't... Uh, Everest was fine, but he was pretty good in Everest. It was a different side of him. He kind of played more of like a... I, I liked him so much more than this. Oh, I for mean, sure. For I, sure. Yeah, he was okay, but like it seemed like in Everest, they just kind of said, do your best Texas accent and then go out there and climb a mountain. Yeah. And yeah. here it's like, he didn't have any put-upons like that. It was just try and be a bro that has something much more serious going on underneath that. And... That seemed like it was something that created a much more believable person for me, at least. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one thing about the movie that I definitely would say is that they could have gone like full Hollywood. And I was kind of waiting for that to happen a lot of times for them to just take the cliche route or or to make something too extravagant. But they never did that. And just the realism of the movie for me was just uh, a lot to take in, which I think is what Josh was trying to talk about, it, what he was feeling earlier. I mean, yeah, yeah, well... To, I guess we'll talk about some of that stuff in our spoiler section of this a little more as far as what made me feel that way. But, like, um, that was one thing I kind of was trying to grapple with a little bit after I saw the movie. It was, like, exactly how much of this is real. Um, I, I, I didn't I, – I tried to learn as little about this movie as I could going in just because, like, I think I saw one trailer, shoot, maybe middle of the summer, and I'm like, all right, I know I'm going to see this movie. I think that trailer might have given away a little more than I'd like to know, so I'm just going to avoid it for the next five months. And that's essentially what I did. It might have come on at a couple of movies we saw, and I just looked down at my phone and didn't pay any attention. And I, so I had no idea if it was based on a true story. I kind of gathered afterward, like kind of one of those things like inspired by some true stuff, but like obviously fictionalized to a certain extent also. But I was like, I don't know exactly how much of this happened, and some of it seems quite far-fetched, but at the same time it doesn't, which kind of says a lot. And I, I, you don't need to have every movie you go see be completely realistic, but the fact is that you left it seeing these amazing suspenseful action scenes and you're like, wow, this stuff might actually happen. And the way they framed um, some of the setup for some of this is in a way where it's like some really crazy shit happens and only a small amount of people are ever going to know about it, which is kind of the, one, one of the w weird things about it. Yeah, and that's kind of what Emily Blunt's character has to, mm -hmm. has to deal with is like she's experiencing this thing that not many people would either A, believe or B, even have the chance to go through and um, she, not she signs up for it, I guess, but at the same time, not initially, but yeah, she, yeah she <laughs> she's just thrown in in the middle, and and it just gets crazy, and it kind of keeps testing her her moral beliefs and and what she thinks, how she wants the things to get right, whether she wants to cross moral lines that she has or not. Um, yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things we can talk about in this section that the movie gets at is, do you want to take the easy route and just try and build the first case you can find, or do you want to actually kind of get get knee-deep in it? Like, she ultimately has to make a choice to to kind of get to the big bad, if you will, and kind of get to the get to the root of things. Yeah. And you, it's something like even like The Wire, like season yeah, one of The Wire. That's what I was like, going to say, yeah. Yeah, you're looking at it and you're seeing, do we want to make the short, easy bust and just kind of call it a day so we can say we accomplished something? Or do you want to do uh, what it takes to go way beyond that? And that can entail a lot of not so fun and quite disturbing things. Yeah. Um, so also, I, we didn't talk about Benicio yet, but he was he I want to talk great. about a few of the other actors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Benicio is great. Go ahead. Who else do you want to talk about? Well, I had, well, um, uh, I, I had in I had in all capital letters Bernthal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. this is uh, one of the more uh, funny things. Is like, I mean, I I know you're you kind of you were out on the Walking Dead a really long time ago. I don't yes, know what I'm, point. I'm still out on the Walking Dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, what, at what point did you give up? 
Um, the only episode I've ever seen was oh, when okay. I was eating Chipotle at my friend's house before Game of Thrones on a Sunday night. Okay, so, um, I mean, I, uh... People I trust besides you told me it was bad, and I didn't watch yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's still something I hope watch, but, like, that was, like, kind of the one thing I still watched him in for a while, was, uh, I, I, that was all I knew him from until, I guess, about a year and a half ago, I'd say, um, or maybe almost, I guess, about a little more than a year and a half ago, and I, I really did not like him, and I... And but all of a sudden he started just popping up in things. I guess this is maybe just something he's meant to do is to be a guy that's just kind of a supporting player and he can flourish in those kind of roles. It's just kind of inexplicable how he's gone from being someone that was like the worst part of like a hit show on TV, but that made a lot of people just really hate it the first two years to then if you I mean, I didn't see Fury. I know you saw Fury. I, I don't know how big his part was in that, but that's a movie that a lot of people liked that he did. But for me, it started with The Wolf of Wall Street. He was really interesting in that. And then apparently everyone hated him in this show called Mob City. They got like six episodes that I didn't I didn't watch it. I hadn't even heard of it till I... Um, I just heard about it from you, so... Yes, I, I mean, I was, I, I was reading, I think, um, someone on Vox talking about him and saying, well, he's bad in that, and he was kind of a lead. So maybe he's just not meant to be a lead because he was in that... You saw We Are Your Friends. I didn't subject myself to that, and you enjoyed him in that, despite your disdain for that movie. And I saw him. We 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 all saw him in Show Me a Hero. And while we might have had our qualms with the end of that, like this is a guy that can go from playing like this big Guido dude in Wolf of Wall Street to then playing a nebbish Jewish lawyer and actually be kind of convincing <laughs> in it in Show Me a Hero. And it was really funny to see him do that. He was in Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Um, probably one of my probably one of the better performances in that movie. But but we even though we really liked that movie all around. And it, he, here in Sicario, he has a he's in maybe three scenes, but they're they're quite memorable. So even the parts that they cast were very small. Like you, we we already touched on all these big performances. We can talk about Benicio a little more. I think he, his performance we need to save for the spoiler section for our reasons we'll get into later. But I mean, Bernthal comes in in, in the in a scene in a bar. He is one way, and then in the next scene is all I'll say. It's like a totally different thing. And then in another scene after that, he has to play another totally different emotion. And he goes from one to the other in about 20 minutes, and then he's gone. But it's it kind of leaves an impression. And it was an example of probably the biggest name they got for the smallest – the big names – there was one example of big name, small part. And a couple other people in this movie we might touch on that we didn't recognize. We still liked what they did. But it was cool they got him to sign on to do something like this, and it was very convincing in a small role. Yeah, and I think it helps that they were so detail-oriented with the whole thing. I mean they just put in all these small details about – where everyone came from and like details about their life and even Reggie just talking about Berenthal before you meet Berenthal and then seeing that like come to come to life and then like you said those three scenes he was in Reggie's uh Emily Blunt's partner yeah yeah and her character's name is Kate Kate yep and before and before we move on to the other performances because I th- we we only barely touched on Emily Blunt at the beginning and she still yeah, yeah. this. I think she de- deserves to be talked about a little bit more and you touched on it uh, what what kind of struck you about what she did well I was I was fully ready to say to you know to accept action hero Emily Blunt like Edge of Tomorrow and this and then going forward but I guess it, it kind of turned not even into an action movie for her and just like the way she could do an emotional performance while in the midst of all this crazy shit happening around her that she was like, I don't know, I guess completely oblivious to before, <laughs> before she took it on. And, and while there's, I mean, th- there are some action scenes to this movie, nothing crazy big, no crazy big set pieces, but she's great. And she was great in Edge of Tomorrow. Even if, I didn't really like that movie personally, but I know it got great reviews. Um, I like that movie, but I thought she was much better in this. Like, yeah, yeah, she was. Became, she was like, great. Like you're saying, she becomes more of a bystander, and you're reading the emotions on her face throughout, and she's reacting yeah. to all this stuff that's going on around her. And Edge tomorrow, she might have had to engage in a lot more action. But one of the things that, and I, and I liked her in it, but one of the things that bothered me about that movie was that it seemed like they asked her to like be like an emotionless warrior. Yep. And like this I, is the complete opposite. Because when you're dropped into Edge of Tomorrow, it, you're you you feel it, you already know you're kind of in a futuristic world and I thought I honestly thought for the first like 15 minutes of that movie is she a robot? Like I didn't know like cuz they, they didn't really talk a lot about her. They showed her being like someone that's standing out amongst these battles with all these very high-tech machine-looking things, and I thought she might actually be a robot. And I'm like, you got to let her play a little bit more emotional than that. And that, that convinced me that she could do action scenes, but I didn't really know to be a fully formed character in an action movie like this is a whole other accomplishment. Yeah, she was great. And I honestly don't know who else they could have got to play that role that she played because 
the to have like the grit and the in the background and be able to play that emotional well, you, type person. I don't know who, what other you female said you, character well, they could have got. Well, you said you, a friend told you that like it was uh, Zero Dark Thirty meets um, No Country. So, and did you kind of agree with that description? Yeah. So you yeah. don't think? I mean, it's kind of funny. I'm going to ask this since we're going to talk about <laughs> Jessica Chastain in a minute, yeah. but. I mean, do you think she could have done something like that? I mean, like, I didn't leave it thinking no one else could have done it, but I thought she did it really well. I don't think Jessica Chastain could have done it. I don't know. I I don't know if she has the, the background for it yet, but she might have been able to do it, but I think, I mean, yeah, Emily I mean, Blunt's... Not, I guess she's not asked to do a lot of action Emily, in Zero Dark Thirty, yeah. but I have a lot of respect for her range after yeah. like, seeing her like in the help versus Zero Dark Thirty. You sure, know what I mean? sure. I think that Emily Blunt's character was just kind of played perfectly. I agree. Honestly, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't have changed a single scene with her. So, I'm not sure that I would want even want to think about anyone else in that scene. And we're about to move. I think we're going to talk about the um, technical aspects of the film in a minute. But it's kind of funny because we were talking about it a little bit before. And I saw Emily Blunt on a, on a late night talk show a couple weeks ago. I can't remember. I wish I could credit which one it was, but she kind of told a story about how uh, Dennis Villeneuve had to convince her to do this right the after director Dennis Villeneuve yes, had to. Convince her to do this right after she had filmed Edge of Tomorrow, and I think she was pregnant, and she just didn't really feel like going to do something this intense. So um, she almost she almost didn't do it. He had she had told him no, and he came back to her. And I guess you were telling me something similar happened with Josh Berlin. Yeah, yeah. I watched uh, Josh Berlin do an interview with Collider, and he said that he was just coming off Everest, and he was just kind of emotionally like just drained and physically drained from from doing that movie and everything else. And that he had initially said no to the part, and then that Deacons, the cinematographer Roger, Roger Deacons, Deacons, he called him and was basically, "Get your fucking ass down here! You're doing this movie." And he's like, he's just like the kind of guy that you don't want to disappoint. And this is Berlin's fifth uh, time working with Deacons, uh, including No Country, which is obviously an incredible movie. And he went and did it, and I'm I think he's really glad that he did it. And he said that in the interview that he was scared uh, about how it would turn out and like how the message would be conveyed when they were when they were filming the shots and then he said when he watched it for the first time he was amazed so i'm, I'm glad both of them decided it to almost do didn't it. happen and like you uh, claimed to said he was almost would have been um he, he he couldn't have seen anyone else in the in the emily blunt role and we thought both thought josh Brolin was really good so this movie almost we thought the casting was perfect but it almost didn't happen in the way it did yeah so uh going back to the director he's done prisoners Enemy, and then a uh, French film, I think, before that? Uh, no, his, uh, I mean, no, his, uh, his first movie, like, his first feature was one that I have not seen called Incendies in 2010, yeah. um, and that was kind of his kind of breakout one, but then after that, it was Prisoners, then Enemy, and now this. Yeah, I haven't seen Enemy, but Prisoners, I really, really liked, and I think the, if you watch Pris- Prisoners, whether or not you liked it, the same kind of intense... Uh, feeling during each scene when you don't know what's going to happen not necessarily good or bad it's just it's just so intense and like you can't imagine like a human being put in that situation how they would feel i think that's clearly conveyed in sicario as well yeah i I like this better than prisoners though because i thought that um i i I thought the performances were a little more restrained like you said you you don't know what's going to happen if you're put in the situation like those people are in prisoners where um their kids are kidnapped um and yes you might act irrationally but in that movie uh hugh jackman got a little annoying for me and i thought it's a certain point like don't talk about wolverine like that (laughs) i mean at at a certain point i thought like yes i get it you're you're not gonna be rational when your kid's kidnapped but you're like going beyond being irrational and kind of turning into a bit of a crazy man and i think um i I mean i guess yes it's justifiable to kind of go a little crazy if your kid gets kidnapped but i thought like it just seemed like it went a little over the top at times, whereas I thought here the performances were much more well calibrated. And other than that, I, I really did love Prisoners, and I, and I mean, I I think Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in that is probably uh, above anyone else's in that movie. Whereas here, I I didn't necessarily think anyone was like kind of carrying the weight in the same way he did in that movie. Sure, sure. I was just kind of talking about the emotional aspects and the way that it was filmed in, in the scenes, but yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, definitely that same uh, sus- dreaded suspense feeling, like I yeah. said. So, and then moving on to Roger Deakins, we just talked about. He's mm-hmm. done, like, 50 movies, like mm-hmm. No Country, True Grit, Skyfall, um, Shawshank. Shawshank. Um, so he's really great, and I think that's, like, why Brolin did the movie. Jarhead. Yeah, Jar. I didn't like Jarhead, but... That's why kind of why Berlin did the movie because this is a guy who's been doing this for so long, 
and is so respected and knows what he's doing. And it's almost like you don't want to miss out on a movie that Deacons is is doing. Yeah, and one of the things I think the, the score was really good, but you didn't oh, even this ominous fucking music, man. That was great. <laughs> yeah, and like I thought that, and I, I it did add to it, but like you almost didn't need that just because of like the way it was shot. Like you felt that. Like we've been talking about this feeling of suspense and dread that you had the whole time, and I think when a movie shot like that, like it's almost like I'm like, wow, I'm feeling this right now, and then the score is just adding to it. Like at some point, like if if it's not a, if it's not well scored, it's gonna kind of might take you out of the moment a little bit. But here, I thought like they they utilized all of this uh, this Mexican scenery very well. I mean, they they did it. It was almost shameless to a point the way they did it. Where at one point one of the one of the characters just asked Emily Blunt to come come stand on a come stand on a roof and just look out here. And it's like they're just wanting to show off where they where they got to shoot. And like I'm like, yeah, this seems kind of like blatant. Like we're showing off, but like it was a really cool shot they ended up getting. And sure. there are other moments that weren't necessarily as staged as that, where it's like. Wow, like I, I, I actually haven't looked up yet exactly where they shot. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of it probably was close to location. It might have. Yeah, I don't think it was in Juarez. I think no, it was I think in they made a lot of Ari- Mexico, They probably though. made a lot of New Mexico and Arizona. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember Brolin talking it. about being in New Mexico, but I think they were. They in made it New double Mexico, for Arizona, and and Mexico. Okay, they yeah they I it, I'm, I I, I, don't, I would never want to go to Juarez either, even if I was the people in charge of shooting a movie set there after Absol- watching this absolutely movie. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, so I think now is a good time to kind of segue into spoiler talk so we can talk about some more substantive stuff. So if you have not seen the movie and don't want spoilers, um, probably fast forward, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. Um, we're going to put a little break in here at this point for, uh, for you guys to know, but I'll pause for about 10 seconds now. All right, so now we're going to talk about uh, some more substantive stuff about Sicario and some spoilers. So do you want to go start, Josh, your initial thoughts, feelings, whatever? Yeah, I already talked about how intense it was at the beginning, and we, we explained that first scene because the that's not much of a spoiler. Like You're going to see that in the first five minutes anyway, but just the, the way they shot that first scene and... The, the that first explosion after that like I thought that to set the tone really well like you you have to um, kind of like prisoners was a very slow build all the way throughout and uh, that and that and that's fine uh, but also at times you end up uh, some some movies end up going just a little too slow and it, the build can be a little long and I like the way they started it out and just like with that bang and that kind of set you up the rest of the way to feel just that, that that feeling that we kept talking about in the beginning of the podcast where you are constantly waiting for something bad to happen. And I th- I feel like throughout the entire movie, just because of that, I was ready for something bad to happen at any moment. And that, like, I was, like, biting my fingers and, like, waiting for some, some waiting for someone to die just about any moment. <laughs> and, uh, and so that... that I, that that's is why I like that setup so much. That that so that that's not actually spoiling anything. I'll say that the the, the probably the really I had that feeling going all the way. Like I said, for thirty minutes after the movie, where I was totally wound up. But the most intense part of that movie was the that scene at the border, and oh, for the, sure. the way they shot that. And it was kind of amazing that like it was probably more intense before the shooting began. And I, I, I'm not sure. I guess it was just the way they were cutting away to the different cars and kind of trying to inspect on hey which which people are going to try and shoot us. And the way they the way they set that shut up, we didn't dwell on it when we were talking about Roger Deakins in the last segment. But the way they the way they the way they shot that scene, uh, you, yes, it was. I keep using the word dread, but like you knew something bad was going to happen. Yeah, and and the thing is, like Emily Blunt is the only one who's even phased by it, and it seems so else, routine. Yeah, it seems so routine. Benicio and all these other guys, terrible. these these Delta Force guys, and these freaking texans in berlin or berlin sitting there chewing gum and wearing sandals and getting out of his car fucking shooting an assault rifle at people like no big deal it's crazy and emily blunt's character is just is like lost among all this and and if and it's her job to react and she ends up shooting this guy through the through the window and and she's that forces her hand like she's in the shit at that point 
Yeah, and I think the set, the setup for all of that was really effective too. I kind of mentioned in the last segment how like I I, w- I would never want to go Suarez or Juarez, excuse me, Juarez, and, Juarez, yeah, Juarez, yeah, and they they. They kind of they, they were they set that up very well, and you kind of felt like something bad was going to happen anyway, just because of the, just because of how they shot that city, and you're like you you know like we're not going to be able to leave here without something bad happening. Yeah. You see, uh, people hanging from bridges, and yeah, with I don't mean hanging bodies. out like chilling. I mean, <laughs> literally, literally hanging. hanging upside down without body parts. Um, yes, and. At that point, you you just kind of know like something something is going to happen, and they were very prepared for it. It just seems kind of weird, and I guess that's kind of the message of the movie in a way is they're they are just so routine to like try and try and shake things up, and it, it, that's that's just their thing. And it's like and it's is is that really worth whatever the larger goal is you're getting at here? Do you want to go expose yourself to these terrible things and put yourself at risk that? You kind of like going into that, like they know there's going to be a body count. And if is it worth going on missions like that on a regular basis to reach whatever higher goal you have in this border war? And I guess we didn't find out till later in the movie, though, exactly what their goals were. And that was kind of that's kind of where I want to head to talk about eventually because that was one of my more things I kind of had to struggle with. I mean, I, I really love this movie, but it was the one thing I had to struggle with a little bit is how they had. And they had to hide the ball in some of the these guys' motivations. We touched on how kind of sketchy their they were as an introduction to Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro's characters, and that gets very slowly revealed. And that's kind of the main thing I wanted to kind of talk about with you with this as we head towards talking about what happens at the end. Yeah, sure. So I'll go ahead and comment on that. So my feeling was about the first thirty minutes of the movie. I was not annoyed, but I was kind of like. You know, I didn't necessarily know what was going on, and I think that as the movie kept going on, you realize like when the movie starts in the beginning, like Josh said, it's so gruesome, and and the bomb goes off, and there's all these dead bodies just like in the walls of this of this house, and and I think the thing that you realize as the movie goes on is that you're just thrown in the middle of it the way the audience is thrown in the middle of it the way that Emily Blunt is. And She's everything. our point of entry character, but exactly. does that mean we should be as confused as her? Well, I think it's just the way some directors want to want to tell their story, and I think the thing we kind of commented on before is that this this movie, the script doesn't matter. Like, no, it's the, not, the, about, the, it's the not about lines. It's not. There's about a way in which the script could have mattered too much. If sure, exactly. To we saw for that sure. preview for that Michael Bay movie, and I think that's something Jesus where the script Christ, is going to. I think I think that's that's an Michael example. Bay is making a movie about Benghazi, guys. It's. It's probably not going to be one of our 52 for 2016. I think that's uh, safe to say now. Uh, um, yeah. That, Unless it's really, really bad and we can hate watch it and make a great pod for you guys. Th- that That's also a very, very distinct possibility. But that's that's an example of a movie where like the script's probably going to get in the way in a bad way. And here is definitely restrained. But I think the point we were getting at had to do with more of how they they reveal the characters and their motivations and what they know. And I, I had some more – my, my, my thoughts and the one my, few minor quibbles I had had more to do at the end of the movie. But I think you had some more overall thoughts about how they kind of let that develop. Yeah, and like I was saying before, I just think like kind of Brolin and the, and the Delta guys and, and Benicio, they just – they knew what was, what was going to happen at the end of their – of their mission and their their story and their game and Emily Blunt just she has no idea and this is her first experience with this and so like as an audience and as Emily Blunt we're just like watching this happen and and reacting to it rather than knowing what to do in that situation and I think that kind of goes back to the to this to the scene at the border um and that they're they all know what's going to happen and and she doesn't yeah, and I, well, and I, and I didn't I didn't mind that so much because I, I felt like I was in her shoes and I was lost. But then at the end of the movie, I felt like at that point I thought I was with it and I knew what was going on and I knew that they needed to they, they, they needed to track the the cartel contact in Arizona back to Mexico. And it was very clear that they already had a tail on him. They found his house. They found him and they could follow him. But they also made a point about talking about this tunnel. And I thought like maybe I wasn't being quite as observant as I should have been. But then we both mentioned how we listened to the Hollywood Perspectives podcast. And uh, both Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, they love this movie, but they were a little confused about that too. Because I thought, well, here their goal is to follow this guy back. Why are they going through all the trouble going to this tunnel? This is a very well-shot scene. It was very intense. and uh, But at the same time, I was slightly confused as to why we were there. And I thought, and then, but then it makes sense. And this will kind of take us to the Benicio stuff too, because it's clear that 
um, obviously they were kind of working with him and he had his own kind of individual goals. Yeah, a little plot twist there. They needed to follow the Arizona guy back to Mexico, but then at the same time, uh, they needed to get the drugs too. Yeah. And I, but like, I, I did not know why they went into that tunnel until then. And I was very confused as to what the, what the goals were at that point. And that took me out of it for about five minutes. And then I figured it out and I understood everything that was going on for, for like what should have maybe been the most intense part of the movie. I thought I understood everything and then I thought I didn't understand it and then I did again. And I was a little concerned mm-hmm. about I had missed something very important. But I think it was just kind of like a plot twist that we didn't see coming, but I didn't realize exactly that was what we were looking for. Sure. And I think also two more things that it just kind of goes with their whole plan. They just said they wanted to stir the shit up, right? And if you don't fuck with their, their drug tunnel, then you're just kind of letting them off easy, regardless of what happens. And that scene kind of uh, perpetuated something for me with um, Benicio. It just kind of reminded me of Anton Chigurh and No Country and, like, the whole mythological thing that he has going on and, like, his almost invincible attitude and, like, the way that Chigurh is in No Country. And he's, you know, he walks slow. He doesn't run anywhere. He doesn't run after the people he's trying to kill. He just knows what's going to happen, and he's calm and... If he dies, he gets shot, whatever. He just keeps going because he has this, like, mission in his head. And I think that was very similar to Benicio's character, and I think that he was true to form the the whole movie. I I kind of agree with that in some instances. At the scene earlier in Emily Blunt's apartment where he kind of shows up out of nowhere, you you get the feeling that, wow, he's really in control of things, but he's not exactly having to exert. it's just this shadowy guy. He's He's not having to sweat a ton. Uh, when, when, when he does that, but he, uh, he got, I, I mean, I, I don't think at that point it, it, he walks through that in no country for old men. He, he goes, the, um, uh, Javier Bardin walks through that movie, uh, and owns the whole movie. And you know what his, that character's MO is the entire time he's walking through it. And it's a lot more ambiguous within Benicio's performance up until the end. And then you kind of get exactly what this guy is. And so it, it kind of kicked into higher gear, but I can definitely with him later on, but I can see the similarities. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess you want to talk about the end now, or you want to, do you want to talk any more about the end and end? Oh, we can, we can talk about that too. My, that, that was like my one, that was my, my, my one minor quibble. And I understood that was just the one point I wanted to make and more, more so than even the end. Cause that just kind of stuck out for me a little bit. I, I get that you don't want to have a lot of exposition and you, you might, might maybe want to keep it, keep them confused, but I thought they maybe could have set up that tunnel scene just a little better. Um, so it didn't kind of confuse me, but that sure. was literally my one criticism with sure. the entire movie. And I want to make that clear. Like if that's the worst thing you can say about a movie, one little three minute sequence, then it's a pretty damn good movie. I but, think even worse, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, I think even it. worse than that for me, honestly, was the very last scene in the movie. It really, really bothered me with the, with the, explain why the kids in Mexico playing soccer. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just think like, is that a little on the nose for you? No, I just, I just. It was just almost that, that was like the most Holly, Hollywood thing they could have done, and I just didn't like it. Like there was no need for them to. I, I appreciated the fact that they included the the cop um, in the movie. Oh, like, that I, I knew I knew I knew it was going to end badly for him as soon as yeah, like as soon as they did. weren't tying him into the rest of the movie. I know like oh wow sure things, he's here for he's here to die. I think it's important that he died though, and I, I know that sounds terrible, but I think it's important that he died because Benicio is using him as like I need th- this guy to get me from point A to point B. And and he he's not this good guy that's just gonna let him live because he helped him. You know, there's you always see these criminals in these movies or these shows or like, okay, you do this for me, I promise you'll survive, whatever. And the cop is like telling Benicio, I have kids. And Benicio's like, I don't fucking care. Like, keep driving, dude. And uh, and he says, get out of the car. Get, do this, do that. And he does it. And I think that it's important because this guy thinks like he's he's holding on to this little hope that he's gonna survive. And Benicio just fucking shoots him right in the back. Doesn't care. And I don't know. I think it's important. I think that's important that they tried to give him some kind of some kind of story just so like he doesn't show up out of nowhere. And we know what this character like it could have just been a random cop playing at the end when Benicio goes through the tunnel. But I think it was important that they at least tried to try to do that. I just thought the last scene was just stupid with them pausing and acting like all oh, these fireworks of guns and and chaos in Juarez is okay, and then the the kids and everyone is sub- subjected to this. I don't know. It didn't quite bother me it. as much in the moment. I, I would say, as it sounds like it bothered you, but like I agree that they probably had 
already established very well that Juarez was not a very good place to live, and they didn't need to convince us of that anymore at that point, for sure. Yeah. It probably would have been better to end on the scene in, um, outside of Emily Bourne's apartment. Yeah. So I just have one more, one more question. What yeah. did you think about the scene at the end with Benicio and Emily Blunt at, the, uh, at her house? I thought they played it very well. I probably wasn't in this, as, the same amount of suspense as they wanted me to be in. Uh, I didn't. I never thought for a second he was going to kill her, and I think maybe they wanted to create that tension, but I just did not see them going in that direction at that point, so maybe it didn't strike me quite in that same way as they had hoped, but, I mean, they both acted it really well, and I enjoyed seeing how she reacted to him kind of being even, in a way, even more intimidating than he was in the scene in Mexico with the drug lord's family. Sure. I... I was actually talking about this with, with a friend, not you, after we saw this, because we wanted to do this all natural, and we did it. Um, and we were talking about that scene, and he brought up the point that he didn't really get it from a realistic standpoint, because they made clear in the earlier scenes that what they were doing was they changed the boundary, and that this had um, authorization from all these higher-ups and everything. And that even though she threatened to talk, and I think that at, in the end he realized, like, when she lets him get away, that she knows that regardless of what her moral compass says, like at the end of the day, they did what they had to do to, to stop quote unquote, these drug dealers. But like, why would the CIA send someone threatening suicide for her to sign a letter when everyone already knew like all the shit they were doing? That was, uh, that was not, not, um, why would they send him to make her sign it? Exactly. It just kind of like, if everyone, if everyone in the CIA and the FBI is like, all right, well, we're not making these decisions. It's like from higher ups, from the DOD or the president, whatever it is. Why would they send a fucking hitman with a gun threatening there's, there's suicide? A certain, there's a certain point in that operation where they probably just seem to cut ties with the Colombian hitman. Like, I think he, <laughs> it's, uh, he's already probably played his part, and you don't really necessarily need him interacting further with the one person that could kind of compromise your entire mission. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we had a good discussion about that. So. I think now we're going to go ahead and, and talk about The Martian. And I think we'll do it the same way. Uh, yeah. We'll yeah. Kind non-spoilers of talk a little and bit then more give in a general break. and then jump into the spoilers as yeah. well. You want to give us, our listeners, a, a plot, Josh? Uh, yeah, I think this is a simpler plot to describe than uh, what happened w- w- with Sicario because if, if you've seen one trailer from The Martian, you kind of know exactly what it is. Uh, it, it, they kind of jump right into it. There's a team in space. They're on Mars. They're on a mission, a fairly routine mission, probably one of the Ares missions from NASA to kind of collect some stuff uh, from Mars, Mars dirt, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, then a storm comes and a big piece of debris. Not He's not talking about Fantastic Four, by the way. <laughs> no, but it was, uh, it's kind of funny. There was more actual exciting stuff in the first five minutes of The Martian than there was in the two hours, of fan, an hour and 40 minutes of Fantastic Four. Essentially, uh, a big piece of debris hits Nick Watney, played by Matt Damon, and he flies away from the rest of the crew. And they, in, in the midst of the storm, they can't find him. They have to leave him because they need to save themselves. They fly off the planet, and they think he's dead. NASA announces he's dead. And the trailer kind of tells you he's alive, so I don't really feel uncomfortable saying that. Yeah, and it's not a spoiler. No, some book readers might have been upset because they thought that was a bit of a spoiler based on how the book was written, but the story here is about him and his quest to stay alive in time to be rescued by and about kind of following NASA on the ground and all the hoops they're trying to jump through to save him as he is taking some doing some pretty impressive sciencing, a verb that he uses in the movie, to kind of save himself over the course of the several hundred days that it's going to take them to get any other kind of supplies back to help him survive and that's essentially what the movie is about both ends of that uh, mission him staying alive and them trying to beat the clock to get him the supplies he needs yeah so uh, i guess i'll give my first thoughts um you didn't like this movie did you uh no uh, i did not like it very much um i I wanted to like it. Um, I was pretty convinced we were gonna like it just by looking yeah. at the Rotten Tomato score. Yeah, we we, we the, so the critics that we like that we usually correspond with liked it, and there's been a lot of good good press about it from the film festivals and everything, and podcasts I've listened to, and just everything. It's a, it was 183 positive reviews and 12 negative. I was just I thought by that sheer number it was gonna be a, yeah a, a, rather um, impressive film. And I mean, I was even prepared to like it, even though Matt Damon's in it, and I firmly hold a fuck Matt Damon stance. <laughs> that's where I, I want to start, though, with you, because I think you yeah. have some stronger opinions on some of this stuff than me, and you were very concerned 
based on some of the stuff that has come out just in the last couple of weeks, and maybe it goes back a little further for you, but he's gotten some bad press lately. There is, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think you've been watching Project Greenlight like I have been. No, nope. but uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, their producers on the HBO reality show, and in just the first episode, Matt Damon decided to uh, quote unquote. Uh, mansplain or whitesplain, whichever one you want to use, diversity to Effie Brown, who is the um, female black producer on the sh- on the movie they're making there. And she, he, he firmly thought that diversity did not require having any diversity in filmmaking, did not require having any diverse people behind the camera, only in front of it, which is kind of dumb. And he didn't really – and he obviously probably thought he was right because he's a producer on the reality show, and he okayed that airing. And then just earlier this week, he came out that he thought that uh, gay actors should stay in the closet and it makes their performances better. And so, needless to say, Matt Damon is a douchebag. Yes, and and that that was one of the big things I had going in is this is kind of the first big movie we've seen him have in a while. And I mean, there are plenty of actors out there who are assholes, and we still enjoy their work nonetheless. Um, I think we, we're both still huge Miles, Miles Teller fans, even though it looks like he might be quite the asshole based on a profile that came out with him <laughs> earlier this year. And I think I don't think that really um, made us. He didn't lose that many points in our book from that, but like Matt Damon's kind of taken that to another level. And did watching this movie, were you able to forget about him as you put it, being a douchebag? I I mean I tried, but he was the same fucking dude in the movie that he basically is in real life when he's being a douchebag, and. <laughs> I mean, there were some... The, I think the script... I was going to say, I blame the script more for that, I think. Yeah. I mean, the script was like... From from listening to people that have read the book, they said that they were worried because the, the book has very good comedy. And like, while it's about... While it's about I think most of the people in the theater thing, with us would agree that the movie had some oh really great God. comedy, too. Yes. Don't ever see it. I keep telling myself I should never see movies in the theater with other people. I should go at like... Like ten thirty or like one o'clock in the afternoon. But. You're the one who dragged. Uh, you're the one who wanted to go to uh, Age of Ultron on like the very first right. showing possible. And we had to All sit right. through a bunch of applause for that movie. So okay. you should have already learned your lesson. On well, that. that's fine. <laughs> All right, uh, you're right. You got me there. Um, but yeah, I just I don't think the script did it any favors. And from people talking about the book, they said that like while this guy is facing this tragedy, that he's still able to maintain his comedic sense of humor and his personality. And I think that there's a way to do that correctly and i don't think that they did that here it touched on it a couple times um i I thought it it hit that well and then they tried to hit you over the head with it a couple times yeah and then it just became so fucking corny all around and it just didn't need to be that for them to do this movie and i thought the first time i genuinely laughed was when uh it's still within his first few days of being stranded and he's kind of dealing with some stuff and it it was it was right after uh he had or it was actually within that first day i guess he he finally stitched himself up after he after he kind of had to get back onto their uh, uh, would you call it a space station that they're yeah in? they're like space what, hub the home they're, they had a hub that he was able to get back into after he woke up after he had been knocked out he took out a piece of pipe from his stomach and stapled himself up and then after he just kind of was exasperated and he sat down and then he said fuck you Mars and yeah, I actually it was laughed great. at that and then the, the problem was they had already dropped one f bomb too before that. And that w- that's your maximum. And they try to derive some comedy out of the fact that they couldn't drop any more F-bombs without out getting a rated R rating, and it wasn't that funny. Yeah, they tried to make stupid. some other very corny jokes where he's talking to himself. And I want to get into the narration a little bit too, but the fact is a lot of the regular jokes they told weren't funny, and then they started trying to tell all these jokes that had to do with them not being able to use the F-word. And instead of me thinking about the comedy within the film itself, I was thinking about the MPAA. <laughs> and I think you failed if, like, your certain members of your audience, a chunk of your audience, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one that picked up on this. You picked up on it too. You're thinking more about, wow, they kind of painted themselves into a corner here, and they're trying to like make comedy. And I'm thinking about the fact that they thought they'd make more money with a PG-13 movie than they would with a rated R movie. And I think that took me out of the film for like a, a chunks of time whenever they tried to derive humor from this. And I, it wasn't. They didn't do it in a funny enough way to justify that. No, it was worthless. It was stupid and like having him mouthing the word fuck while he's in his while he's in his fucking helmet so you can't hear or him. Or typing and, it and having and to use t- yeah. asterisk, 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 yeah, asterisk. No one would fucking type fucking <laughs> with asterisks. I'm sorry. If you're in fucking stranded at Mars, nobody's going to do that. Um, so, so that that was a problem. Like I, I got really excited because I kept hearing all this stuff about humor. All the critics were saying surprisingly funny, surprisingly funny. And I, I'd like to think that while we might be more critical of movies than a lot of our friends that we talk to movies about, we also pride ourselves on – when I say we, I mean Anthony and I. We pride ourselves on 
probably not being quite as uh, highfalutin as just your average newspaper movie critic or online critic who might try and dis- uh, try and seem way too full of themselves for this kind of thing. But the fact is, a lot of them were very impressed with some of this stuff. And I thought, all right, if, if the comedy was good enough for them, it's going to be good enough for us. And we may, both of us might have laughed out loud. You can probably count on one hand how much either of us laughed out loud throughout the movie, whereas like the rest of our audience really was killing it with these jokes. So maybe that means they did something right as far as appealing to the masses, but as far as being the kind of film that's going to get attention for awards, which they seems like they might be hoping for, I don't think people in the Academy, even if a lot of these critics liked it, are going to necessarily buy into it. No, I mean, Michael Pena was in the movie for like probably 10 minutes cumulatively and I laughed more at his jokes than I want to talk about the casting Matt, Matt Damon the rest of the fucking movie how they movie, kind of so. utilize those people in as much as we can without necessarily talking about the spoilers sure. part of it but because this, this is a very heavy cast heavy is a good one I wasn't going to say impressive because I know you have your qualms with some of the people in it <laughs> um, and, but the fact is they, 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 they got a lot of names and they got a lot of names probably more than was necessary and they probably didn't know that because of that they allotted time to some of them that could have been better spent developing some of the other characters which is really my biggest problem with this movie uh you um we'll just start right out and say it uh anthony's not a very big jeff daniels fan no jeff daniels sucks newsroom sucks if you like the newsroom you're probably not gonna like this podcast i'm just gonna tell you in advance i know that it's 46 minutes in but i mean that was 46 minutes well spent for you to know that i hate the fucking newsroom <laughs> All right, now that we got that out of the way, uh, and you knew you didn't like him going in, and I think you, you're willing to have a little bit of an open mind and to give him a chance to kind of at least win your respect with respect to this role, and I don't think he succeeded in doing that. No, I mean, I tried. Honestly, I mean, I, I honestly didn't want to even see the movie after I watched the trailer a couple of times. It just looked like, I don't know. And then just, the reviews brought like you back in. And the reviews brought me back in, people I trust, and, and obviously that we're doing this podcast, like, but, I mean, again, it goes back to the script. It was just, like, it was so... A lot of the scenes were just pointless, and the whole movie was just well, too long and, like, drawn out you right for there, no reason. You said, you, you said pointless. And the Jeff Daniels character, even if we don't like him for that role, you got to have that character. you got to have the head of NASA involved in this movie. You don't need to have... The one thing you definitely do not need is to have NASA's PR person there for every important scene and saying things, and that's who Kristen Wiig played. And I know you weren't expecting to like her. I, I, I wasn't. I had no idea what her position was or what her character was going in. But I, I, I really thought that even though she's done some things that I haven't enjoyed, I've seen her show a lot of range because just what she had to do in Bridesmaids versus some of the stuff she did on SNL, and I really like the Skeleton Twins, and I thought maybe they'll find a way to make her uh, good here. But the, the, the part they wrote for her was. You could have t- taken everything out and it would not have affected the quality of the movie one bit. It was a totally useless character, and you spent some resources getting her. And you could have, instead of, regardless of whatever you were paying her, just you just take her out and use t- talk about time as your resource. And you have Michael Pena there, and we both love Michael Pena, and he was very good with like the five lines he had. And then you had Mackenzie Davis, who uh, you recognize from that awkward moment. I, I, I more know her since I, I watched Halt and Catch Fire recently, and she's very good in that. And she was very interesting in this as just not – I don't want to say interesting. They didn't give her a lot to do, but I enjoyed seeing whatever she was doing more than what Kristen Wiig was doing. She was one of the main people monitoring the screens. And it's not exactly a, an exciting thing, but they could have given her Kristen Wiig's time. They could have given Michael Pena Kristen Wiig's time. Hell, they could have given the Chinese some Kristen Wiig's oh time. Oh, my God, yep. I thought that I would was have read subtitles over listening to Kristen Wiig talk. Yes, but also that was an interesting thing that happened. It was like a decision that those people had to make to help the Americans, and I thought that was kind they, of— They kind of just downplayed it, though. Yeah, and, and at like, the point— It's getting a little on the spoiler talk, maybe, but— yeah, uh, we can we can get to that a little more. Is there is there anything else you want to talk about in this section as far as how about how it looked? Uh, did you at least think they pulled that off well? Um, yeah, I mean it was fine. It was I don't know. They were just either in their NASA building or in the same square footage of Mars that they had the whole movie. So I think they could have probably explored that a little more visually with like. I don't know that the topography of Mars or something, but I mean, it, yeah, it was well, fine. Well, there were some space shots too, and I think we've seen three movies in the last three years that involve people being stranded in space. Uh, yep, Gravity, Interstellar, and this. And I think we put Interstellar number one. Yeah, Interstellar years. is far and away better than Gravity in this. I think this is probably a little better than Gravity. Gravity, I, it just wasn't my type of movie. I respect how it was well done, but it was just it was all in space, and I get why uh, get why that won the Oscar for cinematography because it was very unique at the time. And maybe that kind of thing isn't as unique now, but I didn't think this looked worse than gravity. I thought it, they did fine with those shots. It just wasn't 
anything that was unique at this point, but it, yeah. I didn't feel like I was watching like a green screen or anything. Yeah, like yeah. That, so. I mean, just like that scene in Interstellar with the with the wave moving slowly, like that's something that stands out to me, and like that's it's a really cool shot. For this kind of, yes. And I couldn't tell you anything in that happened in in The Martian that was close to that. Do you want to move to the spoiler part? Yeah, let's just move to the spoilers and, and and get this show going. Okay, maybe stop for about ten seconds, I guess. And yep, you'll, we'll be back. All right, so uh, we're going to talk about some spoilers about The Martian. Um, why don't you go ahead and start, Josh? Well, I was going to ask you about the other performances, and that, like, I kind of touched on it in our first section of this movie, but that was, it was kind of my biggest problem, was that I, I was trying to write down some of my thoughts on it, and they didn't really develop any characters. Uh, like, we talked about how useless we thought Chris and Wig was, but as far as, like, and how they could have allocated that time to other people, because... They didn't really develop anyone else. I thought the one thing that, in spite of that, that they did surprisingly well was, even though they spent very little time on it, I kind of bought how excited his crew was to be reunited with him. Um, even though they didn't spend a ton of time on that, I would have liked to have seen those characters develop a little more. But I think like something like that Michael Pena scene helped a lot, where he's typing uh, yep. Matt Damon the email. Once they're finally connected, you could kind of just pick up on their rapport fairly easily. But I think you still would have, like... The, that whole last sequence would have meant a lot more if those characters on the Hermes ship, which is the one that had to return to Mars to uh, retrieve Nick Watney, if, if we knew a little bit more about those people. I felt like we maybe felt like we knew them a little bit because we're so familiar with Jessica Chastain and Kate Mara. But like at, at one point, we are worried that one of the guys is going to kind of get caught and maybe not make it out. We were thinking one of these guys was going to die. And yeah. we were just kind of making fun of him possibly dying, but we didn't know anything about him. Yeah, and I had no. I couldn't been, tell you what his character name there was. There could have been a little bit more. We, we we could have instead of us joking about dying, that dude dying, we might have been a little more invested and gripped by that scene if we knew who this dude was as a person. Yeah, and I think the first thing I would say is that I just don't think they spent enough time with the crew at all, um, just to develop anything about them. Um, they were just so separated from Matt Damon, and I get that that's the point. That's the, the story that the, I mean, it's based on the book, but I just didn't. I didn't. I don't know. I just I know you said at the end you could feel it a little bit, but I just don't think the whole movie hit any of the emotional spots that they wanted to hit for me. They showed one Skype session with the dude's family yeah. and another Skype session with another guy because they have to make a decision to spend another year and a half in space to go retrieve mm -hmm. him. And they showed two guys talking to their family, and those two scenes combined take about thirty seconds. Yeah, and that's the extent of establishing these people at all. And they, I think. The stuff on Earth was so inessential compared to that. Even if I said I would have mentioned a couple characters down there, I could have spent a little more time with. That stuff was inessential enough that you could have... This movie, you don't want to add this that much time to this movie. Uh, you'll probably find out as we do more of these podcasts that Anthony and I are often a fan of just saying the movie should have added stuff to it. Yep. But the fact is, this was already two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, and it felt too long. You couldn't have added that much stuff to it. But you could have taken out a lot of the stuff that happened with Jeff Daniels and uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor and Sean Bean. Uh, Rachel's upset about that. She's a big Chiwetel fan. But the fact is, those guys, while yes, they weren't established as people either, it wasn't as important for the sake of this thing, for the sake of this mission, for them to have that being established. It should have been spent on this crew that is ultimately going to have to make a huge sacrifice. They're having to make that decision. Yeah, to spend and you don't feel that sacrifice. Yeah, I they, didn't feel it. Like it was so nonchalant. I mean. For them, I guess you're supposed to infer that the relationship with Nick Watney is so strong that this is just such an easy decision for them Mark to make. Mark Watney, I think, right? Mark Watney? Mark, sorry. I call, yeah. I've, yeah. <laughs> isn't there a, is there a baseball pitcher called Nick Watney? Uh, I don't know. I, I've called him Nick like five times now. My bad. But we promise we're professionals. Yes. <laughs> should I just call him Matt Damon for the rest of the podcast? That's what I've been doing. Okay. Yeah, I probably should have just been doing that. I'm almost sure Nick Watney's a golfer. Gosh. Uh, I think uh, he is a golfer. Yeah, yeah. he's a golfer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nick Watney got a few shout-outs from me. <laughs> uh, um, we'll try to get him on the pod next yeah. week. Yeah, maybe maybe he's a movie fan. But, yeah, the the fact is these people, I guess we're supposed to infer that they have such a strong connection to Mark that it's such an easy decision for them. But the fact is that should have been – there's, there's this scene where it should have they're having to make this call, and it should have been such a bigger deal, and it should have – for these people to give up an, a, a year and a half of their life. That was such a – that was probably what struck me most about Interstellar was these people finding out that – they're going to be stuck on this planet for what for what seems to them like 20 minutes, and they're going to lose seven years off their life, essentially. Yep. And that was the, that that stuck with me throughout the whole movie in Interstellar. And the closest thing that to what could have approximated that in this movie was just gone in like 
was done in like a 30 second scene yeah and that was very problematic you could have allocated your time better to establishing the the tough choices these people are having to make yeah and you made the you, you brought up the michael pena typing scene when they're first communicating and i think that was probably the best scene in the movie and then what struck me later on is while that's their first contact i think that they really missed an opportunity to hit an emotional scene when they first get to hear Matt Damon's voice, with which they just completely skipped over when he's just sitting in the rover waiting for them. And they're like, all right, are you ready to come to space? And it's just like, wait. I was sitting there like waiting for them to, to have a scene, even if it's cliche. I don't care. I just I don't understand how you skip a scene where these people, after leaving their crewmate behind on fucking Mars, just – they just skip over the first time they get to hear his voice and talk to him when he's alive. And you mentioned I don't cliche, get that. Yeah, and you mentioned cliches, and uh, there's uh, at the if you're just talking about how you allocated the last ten to f- ten minutes of this movie, it could have also been a bigger deal when they first saw him. They hug him for a second, and then it's like cut yeah, to and then cut and then they cut to them fucking he, getting back safely from space. It's not well. They cut. They, they past cut, that, yeah. They cut past that to when he's now the teacher of an astronaut training program, and he's making a couple of jokes to these students about, yeah, I survived um, creating fertilizer with my own poop, and and then they have a, cr- a credit scene where they watch all these crew members who we don't care about as people living with their families who we never actually got to meet either. Yeah, and it's like maybe you could have just tie, put a little m- bit more of this time back here into having this crew talk to him when they get him back and having some kind of substantive conversation written to, written into the script. And they kind of take the easy way out and just, oh, here's him teaching at a college campus. Here are these people hanging out with their family. And that's it. Yeah. And if you're trying to end the movie on a much more emotional note, maybe you do something right there. Yeah. You're just not invested in any of the relationships in the movie. And speaking of that, apparently fucking Kate Mara and one of the other crewmates have a baby together. That they just don't even. You I didn't think, need to know that draw, at that point in the movie. Like what? That she kisses his 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 helmet like when he's about to go out, and they have no prior con- context for that. It's just like the only thing I can remember is he's standing outside of the ship, like holding onto the ship when he's getting ready to like uh, go to a different part of the spaceship, but he has to like f- f- jump through Did space you know to there do a it. Couple when you saw that? No. But what I'm saying is she like ran off her treadmill and like stand. Stood at the window, like staring at him, and I was like, "Oh, maybe she wants to bang him." But like, I mean, <laughs> I thought, and then all I of a thought... sudden she's just like, "All right, don't tell anyone I kissed you." And then they just flash forward and they have a baby. What? Yeah, I, I, I didn't even put it together when they showed that first scene with her going to run and look at him. I thought it's just these crew members are close and they're worried for each other's safety. So that's and so there was even a more like caught me off guard too at that point. Yeah, it just it's just not necessary. It seemed like they took a short course, and we like a lot of these actors, and it, it's they could have given them so much more time, and it's, I mean, I guess they wanted to be part of a big-budget movie that was going to be popular, but because it obviously wasn't the script itself that attracted them, that's for sure. Yeah, so, I don't know. I would say if you want to watch a two-and-a-half-hour movie about space, just watch Interstellar again. Don't watch The Martian. All right, fair enough. Yeah, the, the other thing I want to talk about for a little bit was the just the narration of the movie, and mm-hmm. I get that that's kind of a device that was necessary, but it, and it, it I thought... It, it didn't bother me as much as I maybe expected it to. I think they tried to establish it in the beginning by him just saying, all right, this is for my records in case I survive. And I sure. guess he wanted to have a record of everything he did. But at the beginning, I think they were like a little bit trying to hold the audience's hand a little bit when he's like, I'm a botanist. I'm good at planning. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you could have shown us that. Like that's been coming like yeah. a big thing. In Show, don't tell. Uh, movies for some reason have stopped doing that this year and that's kind of bothered me but like i get why you need to have that in a movie where it's like a guy by himself for so long yeah but you don't need to have him explaining everything out to the last detail like yeah you can do a like when you're already putting this much money into the visuals of a movie you may as well show some of this stuff and have instead of having him explain it word for word and it's just it's just going to be more effective and that's something that's bothered me and i hope movies get away from it but there have been so many movies in the last two years that have a voiceover and when it's not necessary and here is necessary and i think it could have been worse but I think they did okay. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it works better for a book, no matter what. And I think that I guess that's yeah, you can't really tell book. this story with if the guy's just going to be stranded on a planet by himself without some kind of narration. Um, but and going back to your other point about the botanist thing, I think that they could have spent five minutes just like explaining what each crew member's specialty was or something. Because later on, Jessica Jessica Chastain is like, "Hey, Bogle, aren't you a chemist? Can you make me a bomb?" And it's like. Okay, you didn't need to throw that in. You could have just started the movie like she's the commander. This person is a chemist. This person is a pilot. Michael Pena this is like an expert is, pilot. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he was like, just hanging out the whole movie up until they told yeah. him you're going to remotely fly this rocket. Yeah, yeah. Like you could have given us some context. Like at least in Interstellar, they do that before they give us some context as to like why um, McConaughey is popular and special and why he can do this mission. And I just 
didn't feel any of that from this movie. Um, I think, is there anything anything else you had written down? I think we kind of covered everything. Yeah, no, I think that about does it for me. So I guess just thank you guys for hopefully listening to this podcast. This is the first one we're going to do of so, of many. And plan um, to get a little better technically. So yeah. Thanks for bearing with us. As yeah, we yeah. Get our sea legs under us on this first one. Yeah. And, and um, just to explain going forward how we're going to do this, uh, we thought these two kind of went together because we saw them back to back and they were a little bit, not necessarily the same genre, but maybe kind of the same action suspense kind of movie but for instance i think next we, we might split pod we're gonna not do an hour-long podcast every week for two yeah. movies we're gonna yeah, kind of yeah. split them up if there are different types of movies we happen to see during that week yeah i think we had a lot more to say about these two movies than probably most movies we'll see over the year um and uh just to go back so i said we were watching 52 movies in 52 weeks we're we're focusing on like new releases that year so if a movie comes out in 2015 it goes towards the count but if i rewatch inception on hbo it doesn't count towards our list so yeah so maybe at the end of the year we'll uh, kind of to go along with this uh, 52 and 52 thing we'll kind of maybe do some kind of rankings or list about what our favorite ones out of all the ones we started with, with in keeping with that but then maybe we'll kind of divide it up within the oscar season when we get to like the dregs of the movie releases in late january and we can kind of talk about our favorites from that season and kind of cut out the stuff we saw at the beginning of 2015 that went into the last award season just to kind of give us some other things to talk about on the podcast when the, all the studios are dumping their really shitty films at that point in the year when all the good, when all the good stuff's already been released in time for the Oscars. Yeah. Um, so I think we're probably going to uh, upload the podcast to uh, my movie blog. And then from there, we're going to get it on iTunes and get it on the podcast sites once we figure that out for you guys. And um, and maybe stay tuned for two shorter ones next week. I think the ones we have on our to-watch list are probably Sleeping with Other People and uh, and 99 Homes, which is getting yeah. very good reviews with Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon. Um, you can find me on Twitter at aclambake, A-K-L-A-M-B-A-K-E. And uh, Josh? And I'm at Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I. And uh, that about wraps it up. So thanks for listening, guys. Thanks.